Very good. First of all, welcome. And, and second, let's warn you in advance, you're liable to experience us just a little different than other meetings of other fellowships you may have attended. primary reason that's liable to happen is we intend for you to have a very different experience here. What we do is we take a look at the suggested instruction for a step or so a week directly out of this book, and we use this book in 12-step recovery. Why? The process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work with addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances, and a number of other human frailties since then, right? So um, what I'll do is I'll just show you how I find my experience in the book, because it's a book of experience, and it's not my experience, and it's not your experience, it's their experience. And that matters that you know that, so that we understand we don't change it, we try and align with it in order to get the outcome that they describe. So tonight we're in step one. Yeah, so, <laughs> so those of you who came here hoping for a, a really good time, we hate to disappoint. <laughs> the first step experience is it's probably got some highs and some lows, but the reality is if you come out of an experience of powerlessness and unmanageability and it's nothing but grins and giggles, you probably miss something. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, so, so uh, let's go first to the title page of the book so people can see what we do and why we do what we do and why it's so important that we do it as it was intended so that people have the best chance for recovery. The name of the book is not the big book, although that's what we affectionately call it. The name of the book is Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. So what they're going to describe for you is this, they'll tell us who they are, and they're going to tell you who the storytellers are, but they've already told you who they're telling the story about. They're telling the story about the first several thousand men and women who recovered from alcoholism as a result of this process they describe in the book and the power they encounter through the process. Does that make sense? So then the next thing we want to take a look at is who we are and to find out who we is as opposed to who we are because we may have a pretty good idea who we are but we don't have any idea who they are and their we that we read on the walls. We've got whole fellowships that tell us we're we, but that's a deception. We are not we. They tell us precisely who we is. So if you'll go to the forward to the first edition, they start out with a big W, we, of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That first 100 tells the story of the first several thousand who recovered. But that happened 80 plus years ago. It didn't happen this week. So the guy with a lot of digits on his chip in your meeting who's got suggestions for you, that's Barney's Anonymous, not Alcoholics Anonymous. Because he's not we. I don't care how many digits he has. He hasn't been here that long. Does it make sense? Okay. So then it goes on to tell us that, that to we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So that's what we do here. I'm not telling you anything, but I am showing you how I find my experience in it. And as they describe the sensory experience of the tangible power taking over them and what 
what happened, right? They tell us what they were like, then what happened, and then they tell us what they're like now, and that's what we all flock to find out about, right? So what we're doing is exactly what the book was intended to. I'm going to show you just like I was shown how to find your experience in this book. Does that make sense? Okay. And then it says, for them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. So what I'm going to say to you tonight is those of you getting shown this for the first time, you may find that it resonates as true, but it doesn't sound like what you've heard. But maybe you're compelled to learn more about the origins of AA and dig deeper than just going to meetings. That's our hope. Make sense? Okay, so I'm going to jump from there, interestingly enough, to the forward to the second edition because I want to show you why this is so important to me that everyone gets the right information. If you'll go to Roman numeral 17, XVII, in the forward to the second edition, and I'm down to the second to last paragraph on the page. Now we're, this, this volume is published in 1955 instead of 1939, so they're talking about what's happened in the ensuing years, huh? Yeah. Okay, and so it says, it was now time the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. So back in 39, when they decided to publish this book, this, they're talking about that time, but now this is in the forward to the second edition. So they're talking about that experience, how the fellowship got its name. And a lot of people have been in recovery a long time, and they think the book was written after the fellowship, and that's false. The fellowship was named after the book, and I like to show it to you in the book, so when someone says, well, I've been around for 30 years, and I've never seen it, well, it's because you didn't read your book. Okay? Okay. So this determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939, by the publication of this volume, the same one we're reading today, okay? The membership had then reached about 100 men and women, so they're telling us who they were, yeah? The fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. So, why do we say, when people say they're in the program, when they really mean they're in the fellowship, and we try and say, you're not in the program, because if you're not in this book, you're not in the program, you're in the fellowship, right? And, we, it, and why does that matter? Well, because people come here and think 90 and 90 is the ticket to heaven. <laughs> and it's not true. We have some work to do, some self-searching, leveling of pride, confession of shortcomings for the process to be consummated so that we can get comfortable in our skin. Yes? Okay. All right, so now I'm going to jump from there to the doctor's opinion, and I want to go to the very first page of the doctor's opinion, which is XXV, Roman numeral 25. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous, so who's we? The first 100, and they're going to describe their thoughts about the doctor's opinion and what, what's to come, okay? And see if you can align with their thoughts about what the doctor had to say versus your own experience that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate, believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had the experience of the, with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. So have you guys seen enough doctors in your recovery 
journey to have frustrated a few doctors. So people that work tirelessly in the field of addiction tire of our insanity because they want to believe us. Hell, we want to believe us, but we cannot manifest the will to do the things we say we will do and not do the things we say we won't do. Do any of you ever have that experience? Okay. So when doctors start witnessing these seemingly hopeless patients come to life, it's inspiring for them. So they want to tell why they toil because what they knew back then before medical associations described alcoholism and addiction as an illness is that it indeed was an illness. And no one agreed with them, but they believed it to be so, so they stayed in the field. Okay? So it says a well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. And so we read the letter from him I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I'd come to regard as hopeless. So if the leading addictionologist in the field describes you as hopeless, how's that feel? We might by that time probably be in agreement with them, but we just soon they kept that little secret to themselves, right? So they're talking about Bill Wilson, who wrote this volume and helped many, many people, right? He says, in the course of his third treatment, how many of you have felt diminished when you're coming to recovery you didn't take on the first time? So for those of you who may have felt a little diminished from that experience, may I share with you that the author of the majority of this text took a few times himself. And he's going to describe what happens after, post, his third treatment for alcoholism. And some, finally something took. Does it make sense? So in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas. He acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. What are they saying this is? Exactly the model of AA, exactly the model of new freedom, a peer helping another peer. Because an alcoholic armed with the facts about himself can generally win the confidence of another in a few hours. How many of us have been told that you just go to a meeting and God's a group of drunks and you don't have to do nothing else? Because we tell people that bullshit, and you can do that. But the reason it worked is because people recovered helped people recover. Healed people heal people. It's always been so. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, enough of that rant. So let's go to the next page. And we're going to look at the, the section after William Silkworth signs off. Then the authors come back in. And so we're going to take a look at that and see if you kind of resonate with the author's opinion of the doctor's opinion. How many of you have had an opinion of the doctor's opinion? <laughs> Not this doctor. <laughs> like most of us that have had you know, a, a fondness for pharmaceutical solutions. <laughs> have had opinions of the doctor's opinion, yes. right? Okay. 
Okay, so this is their opinion of the doctor's opinion. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. So he's going to expand his view. My, <laughs> we just met. This must be a CMA meeting. you make bad choices and you make bad decisions and the reality is that is that is a character trait of insane people but if we haven't been told that there's insanity and there's a physical predisposition to addiction and what it manifests as we might be confused yeah okay so I'm going to jump from there to the next page which is Roman numeral 27 and it says, of course, it, I'm at the bottom, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. So the physical manifestation is a craving beyond mental control. Yeah? How many of you have put some substance in your system and then had an idea of how much you were going to do and then overshot the mark? How many have done it more than once? <laughs> so what they say is this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So they are going to treat the mental illness, but the first part of 
understanding that I'm worthy of a healing is knowing that I was predisposed physically to this condition I now find myself in. Does that make sense? That, that made a difference for both Bill and Bob. So, so um, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. How many of you have had trouble with the idea of an allergy because it just seems silly? How many of you have heard the people in the fellowship who say things like, yeah, I drink and I break out in handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really tired old joke, right? So the doctor's a medical guy, so he uses medical terminology to describe a phenomenon he doesn't quite understand. What he is saying is that these people seem to have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. Do I have any drinkers in the room? Did any of you find that you were energized by alcohol? Yes. <laughs> it's a sedative. So that, that experience would be phenomena to a medical professional, right? So if that happened for you, you may want to read further because that is the manifestation of the allergy. Yeah? And then uh, another byproduct is, for many of us, we do break out in handcuffs. But <laughs> we can do that without a drink, too, right? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> anyway, so the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So how many in a never? Zero. Not even one. So all you have to do is ask yourself, have I ever ingested cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, alcohol, add to the list? Have I ever done that and ended up doing more than I had originally intended? Uh, yeah. Okay, so th there may be something to look into. There may be a reason beyond I w wanted it, even though it didn't make sense, right? Okay. All right, so these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, do you suspect that you might have formed a habit that you cannot break? Oftentimes when you find yourself in recovery meetings, even if you don't think you've found a, formed a habit you cannot break, that's evidence that you may have. <laughs> right? Okay. So once having lost their self-confidence, have you... At least at times, lost your self-confidence. Their reliance upon things human. Have you had people beg you? Have they told you if you loved me, you'd stop? Did you love them? Did you stop? Reliance on things human. Their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Has that happened for anybody? Okay. So then it says, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. So I need to get past your insanity into your consciousness. I lack the power to do so. But there is one who has all power. And that one can introduce you to a new manner of living. Yes? Okay.
So in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So that encounter of depth and weight, the reason you leave here and have no idea what was said, but you do know you felt differently some kind of way, that's the encounter we're looking for. That's what I was like. And then the process will reveal what happened, what you're like now, and, and on and on and on it goes, right? Okay, so let's go, not to belabor the point, let's go over to um, page 20 of our book because they, they've just told us what we might be and what we might not be, but they haven't allowed us to self-diagnose what we are, right? And we're pretty good at medicating ourselves, so we might as well learn to diagnose too, right? What do you think? Okay. So, well, you know, whatever. We're going to do it anyway. So yeah. like, Why? You can't say that. Well, of course I can. Watch. I'll do it again next week. Okay. So, page 20, they describe moderate drinkers. I'm sure I have a room full of them. Moderate drinkers have little trouble giving up liquor entirely. If they have good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. So, have you found more than a little bit of difficulty in stopping and staying stopped? Not 20 years ago. That's true. That's true. It's always a, a, a progression, and, and it may be a progression of honesty, and it may be a progression of insanity. Who knows? Um, but we're not here to separate fly shit from pepper. If you made it here, <laughs> let's, let's see where we are. All right. So then we have a certain type of hard drink drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him mentally and physically. So have you ever thought maybe you were a hard drinker and you started having problems and you thought, no, you didn't stop there? Good, we'll just keep going then. <laughs> says it may cause him to die a few years before his time if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor become operative, this man can also stop or moderate. Where are they going to send that guy when he goes to get his warning from the doctor? They're going to send him to the same treatment program I'm in. And he's going to describe a very different experience than I'm having, and his sounds better than mine. His doesn't require self-searching, leveling a pride, confession, a shortcoming. And it's not his fault because he didn't have the experience I had. So I can't diagnose for you. The doctor can't diagnose for you. Only you can diagnose for you. And you're going to have to decide whether that stuff's going to work for you because you're going to share an experience with people in our fellowships. Why do we call it the idea of a difference between fellowship and program? The warning of a doctor becomes operative. He don't need no 12 steps. One step, doctor says, I'll get sick, I'll stop. I got a DUI. That was humiliating. I'm not doing that again. Right? right? Yeah. That's not what happens to people like me. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Maybe a few of you too. Okay. So he may find it difficult and troublesome, may even need medical attention. But what about the real alcoholic? So you hear people talk about a real alcoholic, and people go, what do you mean real alcoholic? Well, they define it on the book, page 21. And that this is where you get to see if you might be he or she. Okay, 
So what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker, to Sean's point. You may have had years of successful drinking. Those of you, you know, heroin, fentanyl, years of successful. <laughs> we might want to get your attention a little quicker. But anyway. He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. So you may go from zero to 60. There may not be a hard drinking period. You may just go off the rails. And they, when they talk about Jim the car guy, those of you who haven't looked in the book, Jim the car guy lost his business due to drinking, but hell, he hadn't had a drink until he was 30-something, right? So, um, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Again, the manifestation of the allergy. So how many of you noticed that loss of control? How many of you thought it was your intent to have it? Because we do. We brag about how much we drink until we start lying about how much we drink. Right? Okay. It's a weird line we cross. Yeah. So it says, here's the fellow who's been puzzling you, especially his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. Can you think of any? Notice how they're talking to you in third person because it's not an assault on your ego and you haven't gone through the process of leveling of pride yet so you can easily see it in others before you see it in yourself. That's why we don't like to change the words in the book because it's not for us to change their testimony. So they're talking to me about me but they're calling me he so I can go, yeah, look at that sucker. At some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control. Oh, I'm sorry. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You guys know that story? Did you experience a little personality change when you used? Okay. He's seldom mildly intoxicated. He's always more or less insanely drunk. How many of you conjure an image of insanely drunk as the guy that's soiled himself and laying on the... Okay, how many of you went to the detox and they did your BAC and they go, dude, you should be hospitalized. How many of you drove there? That's insanely drunk. But what my point is, insanely drunk may not seem insanely drunk to the insane because insane people do not know they are insane. We are terrible judges of our own insanity. Okay, so his disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. So did you get more boisterous or did you get more quiet? Do you know your normal nature? A lot of people in recovery have no clue what their normal nature is because they've been medicating against it for years. So the normal human nature would be more childlike than childish, right? So if your reactions are childlike, amazement, you know, bewildered when you're supposed to be bewildered and joyful when you're supposed to be joyful, that would be a normal nature. And if you're like really good in crisis, but you're terrible when things calm down and you overreact, the, the old timers used to talk about pole vaulting over mouse turds. <laughs> that, that may be symptomatic. So... 
All right, so he may be one of the finest fellows in the world. Let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. Has that happened to anybody? Okay. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. There we hear tragedies of people that have custody hearings or something and they need a little fortification and then they take a drink and then they can't stop and they show up plowed or don't show up at all and they lose their chance. Right? Okay, so we've roughly identified the real alcoholic. So I'm gonna jump over to, hmm, I think what I wanna do next is jump from there to page 25, just briefly, the very first paragraph where it says there is a solution and the solution, I want people to understand that there's a difference. They describe the process and the solution. The solution is what's revealed to us in the process. It's not the process itself, but they differentiate it. And you, you, a lot of people, that's why people talk about how it works rather than who does the work in our rooms. But who is the reason that we do this? The how reveals the who. Okay. Okay, so... There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching and the leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. So what is the consummation of the process? An awakened state. Awakened to who I am and whose I am that I might bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, thy way of life. Yep. Okay, so then it goes on to say, but we saw it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. How many of you want to be rocketed? Everybody wants to be rocketed. <laughs> Don't even know what it looks like. We just want to go. Okay. Okay, let's go to chapter three, more about alcoholism. Do something a little different for a change. So it says most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. So how many of you battled with it, whether it was a matter of will or, and some of us declared we were alcoholic but didn't understand the gravity of it? Of course I do this. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> right? So, but what we're that's why they say most of us. And they're also talking about an inner struggle. How many of you knew something was desperately wrong, but you were hoping no one noticed? <laughs> okay. So it says, no person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Don't get it twisted. All of us like to think we're bodily and mentally different in good ways. We don't like to think we're bodily and mentally different in other ways. So when it tells me something that I feel like I need to live, it's not safe for me to do, I don't want to believe that. No. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, so it says, therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. So how many of you have made a few attempts to prove you could drink or use like a normal person, whatever that looks like? I mean, we are bad judges of what normalcy looks like yeah. in general. But, but it, 
So if we're with them so far, then we're with them. The idea that somehow he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. So I ask you, if you do not believe yourself to be an abnormal drinker, did you find that controlling and enjoying were mutually exclusive? <laughs> yeah. Because they did that for a reason. I could enjoy no control. And times I could control no joy. So we're looking for that. How many of you looked for that happy medium? Added a few new chemicals. Chemical test pilot, right, Lane? I'm sure we can plane out with just a little nudge. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Now the thing about control is they're telling you what you're really addicted to and the substance you're ingesting is really a symptom. Which is why I've got to get rid of that control addiction or I'm going to suffer. Right? So they expected people to be sober by the time they read this book. So now take the alcohol out, the idea that he can control and enjoy his thinking it's a great obsession of every abnormal thinker. We can control our thinking by blocking consciousness or turning our thoughts to others, but we may not enjoy it. Or we may enjoy it and we run amok. Okay? All right. So the next thing I'd like people to look at, because for years we walked into rooms, they had the steps on the wall, and people didn't know that there were steps to take. And if you take the steps off the wall, you probably got an off-the-wall program. Right? So it says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. Now, if you ask most people in modern fellowships what the first step in recovery is, what are they going to tell you? Powerless. Powerless and unmanageable. But that's, that's the confession. That's not the experience. So it doesn't matter how many times I confess until I believe in my heart ain't happening. Does that make sense? Some of you that study that other book, you'll know that that's also true. Yes? Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Okay. Cannot fully concede to your innermost self based on a lie, folks. Doesn't matter what your religious training is. You can't do it. Right? Okay. So this is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe have to be smashed. The interesting thing about delusions and our th thought that we should smash our own delusions is that delusional people do not know they're delusional. So you do not know the delusions from which you suffer, so you therefore cannot smash your own. But an active life of service trying to help others will smash your delusions, your old ideas, introduce you to the power of serving, all those things. Which is why we'd want to go through the process, awaken and serve, yes? Okay, so I want to go from there over to Bill's story, so that's going backwards, because I don't think anybody tells the story much better than Bill, and I want to go to page five, I believe, and we'll run through his experience as quickly as we can, because I spent more time in some of the other stuff tonight, but he's now going to talk about the crossing over. He 
was a drinker, and it got increasingly worse, and then he started going to treatment. Some of you would relate to him, and now we're going to catch him where he's been going to treatments and nothing's working. And he comes in and he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Now, he not only says that, he describes it for him. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, often three, got to be routine. So did you realize that quantities you used to think ridiculous now became necessary stock? Okay. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I'd pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning shaking violently. How many of you have had that experience? How many of you discovered that another nudge helped with the shaking violently part? We call it staying ahead of the curve. Okay, So you're going to talk about that. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Now he's describing the nature of the insanity. I wake up every morning shaking violently, have to have another drink of what poisoned me just to be functional to the extent functional really is anymore so I can run out and pay the people I've been borrowing from so I can get on the hook to them again. But I got this shit. <laughs> I got a plan. Anyone? Okay. So there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Gradually, things got worse. So that's what it looks like from a delusional mind. People living with us don't see it quite so gradual. How many of you have had someone in active addiction with you since you've sobered up? Does it look pretty messy? So what they see and what I see from my adult state are not the same, but he describes it for us so we can get a sense of what, what it looks like, right? All right, so the house was taken over by the mortgage holder. Any of you... Get eviction notices or? Okay. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I'd somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits, and then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. So he's talking about how we're characterized by taking a drink at exactly the wrong moment. He went out to celebrate his good fortune and then he didn't show up to collect his good fortune. <laughs> Any of you ever done that? So did it shock you? Like did you wake up? This has to be stopped? Because Bill said, I woke up, this had to be stopped. None of you had something really go bad and you thought, man, I'm gonna do that anymore. And then did it some more, okay. This had to be stopped. I saw that I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Any of you get to that point in your active addiction? How'd that go? Did you really mean it? You're pretty sure you meant it, huh? So he says, before then, I'd written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. You could tell I meant it because I told somebody else. I had an accountability partner. Oh, some of you had that one too? <laughs> cool. Well, very good. So shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? So when they put a question mark, he's showing you he's starting to look inward. He's starting to question himself, which is the first step towards a first step experience is starting, instead of looking out, look in. 
right? All right, so I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? How many of you got to the point where you started questioning your own sanity? Maybe you thought, thinking about killing yourself. Maybe all those, okay. So it says, I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. So now he's telling you what alcoholic insanity is. It's not doing the same thing, expecting different results. If it were, they would have written it down. If you're alcoholic enough, you do the same thing with no expectation of a different result. But it is an appalling lack of perspective, knowing what's going to happen to me when I do it. It may not happen every time, but every time something really shitty happens, I just happen to have been inebriated. <laughs> yeah? Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. So that experience in fancy words is, I confused the experience of grace with the illusion of control. I got this. Yep, exactly. I got my chip <laughs> proof of purchase. said, I could laugh at the gen mills. Now I had what it takes. One day, I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar asking myself how it had happened. How many of you casually walked into a drink or a drug, weren't looking for it, but when it showed up, by golly, I will. <laughs> so after you found yourself with some in your system, then what happened? Oh, this was a really bad idea, but I might as well get high now. <laughs> no sense in wasting good high time. Let's rock it into a fourth dimension. <laughs> so, so what he says is, as the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I'd manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. So he's showing you the delusion of control. Once he put it in his body, he didn't have any choice. He was going to do that. Get on the building, jump off. Halfway down, say, I choose to hit the ground. <laughs> See if it makes you feel better. <laughs> but the choice was made with an insane, insane mind before I took the drink, not after. That's why they call it the insanity of the first drink. And he's trying to show us that in his story. Okay? So the insanity is characterized by that bizarre behavior, but it, it, that's not what caused it. It's just a manifestation. It's a symptom of that. Okay. All right. So, um, I always do this. Okay, I'm on six again. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. So do yourself a favor. Have a first step experience. How many of you have used again after you knew it wasn't safe? Maybe not. Maybe you've been sober the whole time you've been in recovery, but used again after you knew it wasn't safe. When you woke up the next morning, can you bring to consciousness that remorse, horror, hopelessness? How many of you had those, you've never used again, but you had those drunk dreams? And you woke up, God, who, I wonder who saw. I don't know. Anyone know what I'm talking about? How am I going to tell them? I'm not going to tell them. How am I going to tell them? Fuck them. Remorse, horror, hopelessness, right? So we all know that. We can bring it to consciousness. They say we all can. If we're this person, we all can because it's unforgettable. 
We cannot bring to consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, but all of us can remember the horse remorse, horror, and hopelessness after we reactivate our addiction because it is unforgettable. Okay. All right. So the courage to do battle was not there. So now he's describing what happens to us as a result. I don't deserve this. I screwed up again. What the hell? Anybody? How many of you went back to the fellowship and felt diminished in the fellowship? How many of you were afraid that would happen so you just didn't bother going back? Those types of things happen. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me that the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. So he knew the world would go on without him, and he was pretty convinced most of his life that the world wouldn't go on without him, but now he knew, right? Many of you came into the vision of your own mortality at some point in your addiction and found that difficult to take, okay? So he says that was a hard thought. It is, isn't it? Should I kill myself? No, not now. I'll do it on the installment plan, right? <laughs> then a mental fog settled down. Jen would fix that. How many of you did that? Good man, if I, yeah, maybe I, no, nah, let's not kill ourselves today. Let's have a drink. I'll feel better. I'll feel better soon. Next month, perhaps. So two bottles in oblivion, right? He says, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. How many of you did that? Maybe you didn't have a wife, but just stole something from somebody where there would be no earthly explanation. Oh. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Did you tell them the truth about where it went? That's another powerlessness. Right? We'll lie to them, and they'll know we're lying. And we'll know they know we're lying. And we are riding this motherfucker out. That's powerlessness. Ain't copping to shit. Okay. All right. So, again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. And then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to the lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. How many of you at some point in your addiction started pursuing other? Any of you learned that really alcoholism was nothing more than a Valium deficiency? and found some willing participants in that. So next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. Did any of you cross over in that way? Solve your alcohol problem with a methamphetamine solution? Or whatever, right? Okay, so people feared for my sanity, and so did I. 
So now they are afraid of it, and I'm starting to think they might be right. Okay. I could eat little or nothing when drinking. I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. And it would be nationally known at that time because it wasn't a disease. It was weird. It was set up for veterans and such more than anything else, right? Towns Hospital in New York. Yeah, Dr. Bob hadn't been encountered yet. So this is, this, this is Silkworth. So, so then he says, best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I'd been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So the component for Bill that started to make a difference was to learning that he didn't drink because he was bad. He drank because he was sick. And then he had some manifestations of self that obviously needed to be tended to. Make sense? So it allowed him to, to sort of consider seeking a healing. Here he is, okay? Um, it relieved me somewhat to learn that alcoholi in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor. So what does that mean, the will is co amazingly weakened coming to combat liquor? And seemingly drawn to what I know will kill me if I do it again. Yeah. Right? The, my will is amazingly weakened in combating it because the fight's in my mind. Yeah, right. I don't have an expectation of it turning out different after a while. I know it's not going to turn out different. I just believe the current moment too painful to go on, and I know what will happen the minute I get there. In fact, the minute I give myself permission to go get it, I start feeling better. Right? Where's my opiate addicts? Really dope sick, and then you find out someone's got a script. <laughs> I'm going to make it. That's problematic. <laughs> yeah. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. So he finally gave himself permission to accept help because his incredible behavior was explained to him in a way he could absorb it. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. How many of you got some self-understanding and went out a brand new man or woman? Okay, well then what happened? Because we still haven't encountered, greater, haven't encountered power greater than ourselves. We've just encountered some human understanding. Oh, I'm sick. What's my medicine? What will happen if I take two? <laughs> For three or four months, the goose hung high. So what are they talking about? Yeah, things are looking up. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. So they're talking about all of our experience. And we come to a fellowship and people start making suggestions. And we know ourselves better and we're going to be meeting makers making it. But it was not. And this is what happens if we're not meeting makers who make it. Because we're the vast majority and we don't talk much about them. Right? But it was not for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. So how many of you had that experience? Not going off a ski jump, but when you used again, things got bad quick. I knew it was going to be bad, but whoo, <laughs> long way down. <laughs> okay. 
After a time, I returned to the hospital. So he's been there three times. Now he's drank himself to a fourth. And now that's where we, we get to him. I'm going to jump because we're going to run out of time. I'm going to jump over to his encounter with Ebby because that's all we're going to get done tonight. So we, we got through our powerless and unmanageability, and now we're going to take a look at page nine. And picture the person in your addiction that no matter how bad you got, this is the one man or woman who at least you weren't that bad yet. <laughs> got that picture? Okay, so that's who Ebby is for Bill, and Bill's going to describe the encounter of Ebby coming to see him sober. So it says, my musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked me if he might come over. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. So it was really amazing to him because Ebby, nobody's as bad as Ebby, right? As bad as it got, I wasn't that damn bad, right? <laughs> Look at Ebby. So I was amazed. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. It was inconceivable that he could be there because he'd been committed. and He must have escaped because who'd have let that crazy bastard out, right? Of course he would have dinner and then I could drink openly with him, unmindful of his welfare. I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing an oasis. Drinkers are like that. Think about what they're saying there. What is an oasis oftentimes in the desert? It might be water and it might have you drinking sand. But even if 99 times it's sand, if I'm a drinker, we're going to drink that sand until it becomes water. Because drinkers are like that. Even if it might happen, we're going to pop off. Right? All right. So, so he describes him walking in. The, the door opened, and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. Guys, that's a weird way to describe your drinking buddy. So something really weird has ha happened when you're describing your drinking buddy as fresh-skinned and glowing. <laughs> there was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different what had happened. So he knew something had happened. What he didn't know then that he discovered through the process is he had encountered the presence of God when he opened the door. And then he says, I pushed a drink across the table, and he refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had gotten into the fellow. He wasn't himself. So how many of you have been disappointed but curious? Okay, so you're not going to use with me? You're not going to drink with me? Oh, well, more for me. That's where he's at. So now i got to ask, come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. Now, regardless of your religious leanings, let's admit it. You're drunk and drinking. You think it's going to be a party. You invite the cat in. He's inexplicably different. He won't take a drink. And when you ask him what happened, he said, I've got religion. The fun meter goes, <laughs> right? That's going to be a fucking lecture. Sure glad I got plenty of gin. Yeah. 
I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot, now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. <laughs> now, that's cool, but then the cat doesn't act like he expects, and that's when he's gripped by the power. Folks, I'm going to call to your attention because we've got we to gotta land the plane. We're not going to get to go as far as we would sometimes go. But from the encounter, that's what I was like, which I won't learn until I go through the steps. But what happened is that encounter. I walked into someone I knew to be hopeless, and they not only were sober, but they were coherent, and they'd come there for me, and they told me, he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. So he's talking about what happened to him. Although he remained all his life a doubter, he always declared this encounter. He encountered the power of the living God in the person of his friend. And his friend said, we've got a religious idea. God dwells in you and a practical program of action that will prove that power to you through you if you will be a doer of the steps, not a reader. Does that make sense? So that's step one, and next week we'll look at the encounter in depth. Thanks.